please turn in your Bibles to the 21st chapter of the Gospel of John, John chapter 21. come to this last chapter in this noble gospel written for the salvation of sinners. One is tempted to summarize and review the whole book because it's been such a precious study, such an ennobling and invigorating consideration of God's Word that I hate to leave it. I think and I trust I can say confidently that I've learned much just in going through the various commentaries and searching out these texts over these past years, and I hope that you have as well. This morning, because the time is pressing, I'm tempted not to read the whole chapter, and yet the sermon is occupied with the whole chapter, and I want us to read it and get the full tenor of this, which I believe to be an appendix to the gospel, which John added after his first penning. And he added it for what I think will become obvious reasons. It is very possible, perhaps even probable, that in verse 24, there is a statement in which some elders of co-elders with him in the church at Ephesus write their own testimony to the veracity of this last chapter as a genuine addition to the gospel. When they say that this is the disciple that bears witness of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his witness is true. There were things developing in the history of the church by the end of the century that needed to be put right, and a further clarification of the place of Peter in the apostleship and the place of John in the Lord's plans. Be that as it may, follow as I read in your hearing, John chapter 21. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself on this wise. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus the twin and Nathanael of, of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, you know them to be James and John, and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter says to them, I go fishing. They say to him, We also come with you. They went forth and entered into the boat, and that night they took nothing. But when day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus, therefore, says to them, Children, or literally lads, have you ought to eat? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you shall find. They cast, therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. That disciple, therefore, whom Jesus loved, and we believe that to be John, says to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, 
He girt his coat about him, that was his working vestment, for he was naked. Literally, he was stripped down to his loincloth, and he was working in a hot night, apparently, and he was stripped down with no top on. But the other disciples came in a little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 200 cubits, about a 100 yards, the length of a football field, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out upon the land, they see a fire of coals there. Now as you read this, remember the experience of Peter at the arrest of Christ. Where did he warm his hands? And a fish laid thereon, or fish, and bread. Jesus says to them, Bring of the fish which you have now taken. Simon Peter therefore went up and drew the net to land, full of great fish, a hundred fifty-three. And for all there were so many, the net was not rent. Jesus says to them, Come and break your fast. And none of the disciples durst inquire of him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus comes and takes the bread and gives them, and the fish likewise. Now, it is, I think, uh, clear upon reflection of this passage that he has not cooked their fish. They've just dragged the net full up on the beach as a further testimony of his sufficiency in supplying them, but he's feeding them the breakfast he fixed. Now here's a man who apparently hasn't been fishing. They've been fishing all night. They have no fish. He's got breakfast. And he feeds all of them, these seven, and himself, perhaps, with this bread, and perhaps, probably, this fish is a relish, a fish relish that is added to bread. It's not a lot of fish, but it's something of an addition to a meal of loaves. And so he says, come and eat, and he gives them the bread and the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after that he was risen from the dead. Now this is not the third appearance of Christ in this gospel. It's the third time he's appeared to the apostolic group. That's what he means when he uses the word disciples in this text. So when they had broken their fast, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, literally Simon of John, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of John, do you love me more than these? He says to him, Yea, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, Note as we pass through this that the word the Lord uses when he asks the question love is the word agapos, meaning a principled, abiding, deeply rooted uh, love. The word that Peter uses in responding is philo, meaning a deep and warm brotherly affection, but not as noble as the first word. A tender, warm-hearted brotherly affection and it is a noble kind of love, but it is not the same thing Jesus is asking. Jesus uses a completely different word in asking the question, and Peter changes the word when he gives him the answer. In our language, it's translated the same word, agapos philo, but in the original, two different words. He says to him then in verse 15b, 
feed my lambs. He says to him again a second time, Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Using the same word the Lord originally used. He says to him, Yea, Lord, you know that I love you. Using Peter's own word. He says to him, Tend or shepherd or oversee my sheep. He says to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this time the Lord uses Peter's word. Do you... The word is phileo or philo. He changes down to Peter's word. Do you even have the kind of warm brotherly affection for me that you're saying you have? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you have this personal warm brotherly affection for me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I do possess this tender brotherly affection for you. Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto you, when you were young, you girded yourself and you walked where you would. But when you shall be old, you shall stretch forth your hands, and another shall gird you, and carry you where you would not. Now this he spoke, signifying by what manner of death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he says to him, Follow me. He first predicts to Simon Peter, What's going to happen in his old age? He remembers what he, the way he conducted himself in his youth. You do what you think. You're a man of your own impulses. You've been a liberated, independent young man. But when you get old, it won't be that way. You will go where you would not want to go. You'll go against your better uh, physical desire. Another shall gird you and lead you where you would not go. And John says, this he said, signifying by what manner of death he would die. Now, either he simply meant to signify that Peter was going to die the death of a martyr, or more precisely, he was signifying that Peter was going to die the death of the cross. Strong legend supports that Peter was crucified. Uh, legend supports that Peter requested that they crucify him upside down, because he didn't want to be crucified the same way his Lord was. We don't know if that's true or not, but it's very possible that he was crucified as a martyr for the faith. But whatever, either, whether it's the specific signification of the death of the cross, or simply the broad signification of a martyr's death in which he would not voluntarily go, but will be taken by another, the Lord is saying things have changed for you, Peter. You're not your own anymore. You're going to be directed in other paths against your own carnal self and you're going to be girded by another stretch forth your hands and another will lead you where you would not go follow me and all of this prediction of his death is accompanied by the commandment and the assumption that that commandment would be followed follow me that death is going to be a consequence of his following Christ Verse 20, though, Peter turning about. Now, apparently, Jesus has already started to walk away. Peter's already started to find him, follow him. But he turns and sees the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, following. So he's beginning to follow, but at a distance. 
he also leaned back on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is it that betrays you? Peter, therefore, sees, seeing him, says to Jesus, Lord, and what would this man do? Literally, what of this man, or this man what? What's going to happen to him? You told me I'm going to die, what's going to happen to him? Jesus says to him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to you? Follow you me. And there's an emphasis in this statement. The first is an emphasis on he. If I will that he follow till I come, what's that to you? You follow me. This saying, therefore, went forth among the brethren that that disciple should not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he should not die, but if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple that bears witness of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his witness is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, everyone, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that should be written. This is that biblical hyperbole that grows out of the, the flush of a heart filled with the greatness of the works of Christ, saying the whole world's not big enough to, to contain what the Lord Jesus has done. Now, having read that with the running commentary, again, let's bow together and ask the Lord to help us in the labors of his word. Our Father, we feel our need and our weakness and our dependence upon you, but we have grown accustomed to your ample supply in answer to our requests. We believe you, Lord, and now again we come not in our own name, but in Jesus' name, and ask for the sake of him who has graciously revealed himself to us. We know that that revelation was not in order to destroy us, but to save us. We ask in his name that you would now draw near, that you would open our minds and our hearts and our ears, even those of us who did not come prepared aggressively to pursue your word, even those of us who have things in our consciences that are making it hard for us to listen to you without reservation, even those of us that have opposed your word in other places, at other times we pray you would come, open our hearts, help the preacher to be faithful to the truth, to be clear, to be concise, to be bold, and give liberty to him as you help those that hear him that Christ may be exalted through the ministry of your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was growing up, I was a part of a, Christen, a Christianity in which going to church was a social happening. I thought of it this morning. This time of year in the Southland, uh, and especially in the earlier part of the spring, it was typical of the ladies to compare hats at church. One of the favorite pastimes in churches when I grew up was looking around at hats and at dresses. And preachers often referred to that practice and condemned it from the pulpit because there was the appearance that we had a fashion show at the church and we were trying to see who outdid the other. 
later on, if, it, if moms couldn't accomplish it, they would do it by comparing their kids' latest Easter outfits and all the folderol that fa- happened over those events. Church, though, was a wonderful experience. It was fun to get up on Sunday morning, get all dressed up, drive down to the church house and do something you never did the rest of the week. It was a special time. And then after church to go home for a dinner of fried chicken, mashed potatoes, green beans, and all sorts of other stuff piled up so high that when you finished, going back to church was not the the closest thing on your mind. Those were days in which everybody seemed to enjoy going to church. They liked that whole experience of being in that place, decked out, dressed up, and doing this thing. Seventy-five percent of them did not come back for the evening service. Ninety-five percent of them did not come back for praying on Wednesday night. Most of the churches didn't even have prayer on Wednesday nights, but all sorts of other activities designed to get those ninety-five percent back on Wednesday night. But growing up in that kind of Christianity, Southern Protestant Christianity, the Bible Belt religion, was an experience for this one. And yet, early in my years, reading the Bible they gave me, believing the portions of it that they taught me in Sunday school, taking seriously what the pastor said from the pulpit, I became convinced that the real reason we should be going to church was to meet God. And it became apparent to me that for many people that was not the case. They were going to church to see hats, to see their buddies, to look for girls, to whatever. Some went because it was an advantage to their business. It was a social, cultural phenomenon. In fact, if you didn't go to a church and had to leave that off your resume, it affected your getting a job in many communities. In the old days, being a good member of Church was a good way to get into the company. Being a member of various organizations, of which the church was one, was an advantage. Growing up that way was difficult because I began to see in my Bible there was more to church than that. And that it was at least God's will that we meet Christ when we come to that place. I also knew that because people were not meeting Christ, had no intention of meeting Christ, never thought about meeting Christ, there was no wonder that they did not return Sunday night. For when you meet Christ, it changes the way you think about it. When you meet Him at church, it changes the way you do in response to your church. If you go for years not meeting God at church, Church is a bore. The hats do get uh, less enamoring. The fashion parade doesn't last. It's not as fun. In fact, I noticed when I was nine years old that the men of the church who had no hats to compare were not quite as excited about everything as the ladies were. The men did not seem to want to do a whole lot of that talk except between Sunday school and morning worship, out in the front of the foyer, out on the steps, as they smoked their cigarettes and talked about the Friday night high school football game. And we children grew up hearing that while preachers preached 
the saving work of Christ in the pulpit. And the men would sit, almost all of them, on the outside pew where they could lean and rest the head. The ladies a little further in. And ordinarily, if you wanted to get a committee really working in the church, you had to put ladies in charge of it, or at least pack it with the ladies, because they were the ones that were busy about the kingdom, at least as we defined the kingdom in those days. Now, what does that introduction have to do with the sermon? Well, I thought about it this morning. I, I grew up in what was considered to be the epitome of Bible Christianity, in which it hardly ever entered the minds of the professing Christians that they were at church to meet Christ. No wonder those churches were empty. No wonder there was no joy in worship. No wonder after we compared the hats, nothing else was exciting. No wonder we talked about football and smoked our cigarettes. We didn't meet God there. Church was not designed for that. We were not there to meet God, but to meet people and to make contacts and to have a break in the week and to salve our conscience a bit that we've done our religious due one more time. But I say to you that encounters with God are what make the difference in people's lives. And when the Lord Jesus appears and manifests himself to his people, that's what changes them. It's when you meet God that your life makes sense and it makes all the difference. So it is in this chapter, the 21st chapter of John. The feature of this chapter is the manifestation of Christ to his disciples. It is the third time that he's revealed himself to these men as a company, as a group. And it is the center thread that ties together the whole passage. What I want to do this morning is concentrate with you as briefly as I can on the subject, lessons of lordship. Because what the Lord is doing in this chapter is revealing himself in another aspect of his lordship over the disciples, over the world, over the church. And there are great lessons to be learned from this manifestation of Christ that you and I need to heed and need to put to work in our lives. Meeting Jesus. What an experience. Now here was Simon Peter and the others, similar no doubt to many of us, who even after having experienced the resurrected Lord, has sort of lost heart for some reason. He's going fishing. Now this is not a pleasure. This is not going out on the bank of the river and sitting with a picnic lunch and throwing a few bob bobbers and hoping nothing hits. This is not a relaxing afternoon uh, to get away from work. This was their profession. This was an all-night fishing trip, not a charter boat to come back and brag on the big catch. This was to get some food, some meat, some earnings. And it was a chore. And it was an all-night chore with the net, which they cast, drug, pulled up, and hoped to catch fish. All night long, they failed. Here's Peter. I go a-fishing. And I think that with John's 
sign-filled gospel and with all the imagery and the symbolism in John, we must assume that there's more meant by that in John's gospel than just a meaningless statement, I go a-fishing. I think Peter was a bit taken back about the thought of serving Christ any further in the ministry. I think that for some reason, possibly because he lost heart from his denial, didn't expect the Lord was going to use him in the ministry again, felt that, well, let's get back to what we were doing. I don't think it means he doesn't love Jesus. I don't think it means he doesn't have feelings for him. I don't think it means he's throwing his faith out the window. I think it means he doesn't have anything better to do. The Lord hasn't been around for a few days. What's in it for us? I'm going to go fishing. He's distracted, he's got a few other things on his mind, and he goes back to the old things. They're not wrong things, but they're distracting things. They're not to the point of things. They're off the subject of things because the Lord has already commissioned him for some other kind of fishing. And he's back to his labors. I don't know how you prepared for work for church today. I don't know if you meant to meet God here today. I don't know if you didn't come within, in your heart with something of the same spirit as Peter. I go a-fishing. In other words, your heart is somewhere else. Your eyes are someplace other than Christ. You've grown disheartened with his failure to meet up with your demands. He hasn't filled your life as you thought he would by now. He hasn't answered all your questions and solved all your problems and so you're sort of weary with it and you're thinking of just going back to the ordinary. Maybe you don't expect ever to be greatly used of God. You want to be one of the fringe members of his congregation. Perhaps it would be easier if you could just kind of take a low profile, stay out of sight, show up periodically, maybe even mostly, but don't ever be expected to take a public center place of voluntary service they might notice you and take you up on it. Don't stand forth as a man of God with clear principles that others notice and then begin to say, you come up here. You, we need to hear from you more. We need more out of you. We see Christ in your life. Maybe for some of you, you dread such a responsibility and accountability, and so you're hoping you can stay on the back burners of his service. I don't know what it is, but... I believe in this place this morning there are some who have yet to turn loose of other things. And you still have in your mind a sort of an ace in the hole or an extra provision in case it doesn't work out with Christ to which you may resort if you need. I go fishing. Some of you it may not be a legitimate thing. You may be still torn with old sins that ought to make you so ashamed and ought to scare you so much that you wouldn't even let the thought stay a, a second in your mind. You still flirt with them. Think about them. You don't even need to be tempted because you tempt yourself with them. I don't know. But in that place, with that mentality, the Lord Jesus comes. Now, I would also say that it is often that the Lord meets us on in the wake of our failure. In fact, he often plans our discouragements in order to prepare us for his coming. Sometimes it's a test to see if you pass and are available when he comes. 
Sometimes the Lord will throw something in your path to set you back so far that it's all you can do just to pull yourself back up and be available to meet him next time he comes. And sometimes he does it just in order to test whether your faith is genuine. Is it the Lord Jesus you're trusting, loving, pursuing, serving, or is it some of the things you sought to get from him if you did? Sometimes he takes those things away to see if it's truly himself you love. Sometimes he lets you fall flat on your face in public embarrassment just before he comes to bless you. You are not to decide once you've blown it that that ends it for you. You're not to decide once you've failed in your fishing trip that that's over for you. Sometimes it's right after that that the Lord intends to come and transform your life. Here they are, fishing. Now, I've divided it into three parts. I do not believe we'll get to all three. But I hope to get to part of it. The first I want to emphasize is the manifestation of his lordship. As we draw from this chapter lessons of lordship, I want to emphasize the manifestation of his lordship. He comes to reveal himself again to the disciples as Lord. Thomas did rightly confess in the previous chapter, My Lord and my God. And when he confessed it upon seeing and perhaps touching those wounds, in obedience to the commands of Christ, he spoke rightly. He, as it were, fell on his heart's knees before Christ at his feet to worship his Lord and his God. And that is who is revealing himself to these disciples. Now, how do we see this manifestation of his lordship in this chapter? We've seen it throughout the Gospel of John, but there are ways again that he shows it here. First of all, we see his lordship in that he shows that he has power over death. This is the one who in chapter 20 revealed himself to the apostles with his wounds, remember, validating his resurrection. It is the resurrected Christ who is Lord and God. It is the one who again is revealing himself as having risen from the dead, one who has conquered the grave, that as the worthy name of Lord. Wherefore, having died the obedient death of the common criminal on the cross, wherefore God has also highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, the one who died, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He has conquered death. So it says in the scripture that he both died and rose again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. He manifests his lordship again as the resurrected one, victorious over death. Now think a minute. How extensive is that lordship? What is your greatest enemy? What is the last enemy that will arise in your life and strike a blow at your heart? Death. You came into this world dying. 
You were born on a journey to the grave. It is a dilemma to us that we die. It is a terrible thought that we die. It is a lonely thought to think about dying. It's a fearful thing to look into the face of death. Death is a specter over us that makes us uneasy at best, terrified at at worst. Death has come into the world and some of us wonder why. Children, as they start in their innocence and grow up loving the world, loving the pleasures of the world, loving the fun times and the sugar-coated candies and all the things that children in their innocence love, when they first encounter death, it's a joke to them. It breaks everything up. I have one who is extremely sensitive to tragedy and things that go wrong. And the first time he found out things died, it hurt deep. It shocked him. It shook him. He didn't know how to handle that. It's a ter- it doesn't fit. Why do things die? That doesn't seem fair. All right. You get a taste of the world and then you're gone. You appear a little while like a, a cloud and then you're whisked away. It's like a blade of grass that appears for just a time and then it withers away. What is life? And brethren, you have heard it if you're familiar with the language of the music of our generation. That death has spoken so loudly into the ears of this generation that that's all they can hear. Some have actually taken it and embraced it and become suicidal in their lyrics. Because they have no knowledge of the gospel. They've never met the Lord of death. They have no idea who has the keys of death and hell. They've never seen Christ risen. And so death has the last word. And their whole lives are tainted and beclouded with the specter of death. But the Lord Jesus Christ has conquered that greatest and last enemy that has clouded our whole lifetime. He came and was revealed in the words of Hebrews 2 that He might deliver us who all our lifetime were in bondage in the fear of death. He came to liberate us from the devil. By breaking the devil's power over death, Christ has done it. That's an extensive lordship. Not even death could hold him. But the second way that he manifests in this chapter, his lordship, is that he not only has power over death, which is patent in the passage of his resurrection, but he also has power over nature. Now who is this that comes to a sea early in the morning and addresses a hundred yards offshore a group of professional fishermen. He is a carpenter's son. He's not ever been a fisherman. He doesn't understand the ways of the Lake of Galilee. He would not have known the time to fish. He would not have known the way to cast the net. He would not have understood how to handle a boat. He would not have known how to find the fish in the water and know where they would probably be just at the right distance, perhaps in a dropping off place out on a ledge out there a hundred yards away. What is this carpenter's son doing on a beach telling some guys how to fish? Well, this is the one that knows where all the fish are. He didn't study in a fishing school. He never watched 
the fishing program until he never did buy the books. He never did practice the art. He didn't need to. He made the fish. He made the sea. He knows where all of them are. And he knows where all of them are right this moment. He said, well, this is a lucky guess. <laughs> These men have been fishing all night, folks. And when he shows up, they have a net over here. It's a big net. And he simply says on the other side of the boat, that's not very far. You'd think that sometime during the night, one of them would have drifted under the boat to this side into the net. Not a one! And now here's the Lord. It's on the net on the other side of the boat. Now it's interesting, they don't question this. They just do it. God has so much power, they don't even know it's the Lord yet. But for some reason, this no name on the beach, a hundred yards away, who can see nothing out here, it's still misty and early dawn, says, cast it on the other side, you'll find they do it. That's, a, that's an amazing thing to me. Apparently the Spirit of God is at work. I mean, why did you listen the first time the gospel was presented to you? The foolishness of preaching made sense to you. Some religious tract, some comment by somebody you hardly knew, some sermon that you heard when somebody sort of pushed you into church with him one morning, and you listened and believed it. The Spirit of God was at work. And the one dealing with them here is the one who is omniscient. He knows everything. You say, well, that's obvious. He knew where the fish were. But he, that doesn't mean he's Lord and controls everything. Well, brethren, you know, he not only knew where they were, he told them, if you put your net over there, you'll find. You'll get fish. Now, you answer this question. How can Jesus Christ make any promise about anything if he is not in control of performing the thing he promises? You answer that question. You cannot get rid of the sovereign power of God over every cell of existence without getting rid of half your Bible in the process. Don't talk about the promises of God if men will, 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 will. There are conditions to his promises, to many of them. But don't speak of them as though somehow he's dependent on us to fulfill them. You impugn his integrity if you quote his promise and then question his capacity to fulfill it. He promised without being able to guarantee. You and I write IOUs. You and I give promises. You and I break our promises, and we didn't intend to, but things change after we made the promises. Picture yourself here. Hey, they were there a minute ago. When I looked, I saw a school of fish, and they throw the net over, and there are no fish there. Well, they were when I first saw them. That's not the way the Lord's dealing with this. There's no question. Not only are there fish there, they will not be scared off by the net. And they will not be gone when they fish. They will get fish. How can he guarantee that? Because not only does he know where they are, he will see to it that they go into the net. He's in control of every fish in the world. He has power over nature. You shall find. Somebody said, well, what about free will? Well, let me ask you a question. Here's a good illustration of free will. Did those fish have the freedom to swim away? Now think about that. 
Did the fish have the freedom to swim away? Don't trap yourself. Were those fish able to swim? Assume, presumably, yes. Has God made fish so that they can't swim? No, he made them so they could swim. Do fish ordinarily get to swim where they please? With, with the various barriers? And Yes. Why did the Lord know they wouldn't swim away? There's only one answer. He wouldn't let them. Because if they had true freedom to swim away, he could never have promised that they wouldn't. Once he's predicted they'll be there, they no longer have the freedom to leave. Do you understand that? Once God promises that all his elect are going to be saved, they are not going to get away. So whatever you do with their freedom, you cannot deny his power over their freedom. They will never exercise their liberty in violation of his sovereign control of everything they do. It's a frightening thing if you think about it. But it's no less than a testimony of the godness of God. We are dealing here with God. He's Lord over nature. But not only does he have power over death and power over nature simply described in this passage, but in the third place, he manifests his lordship in that he has authority over all men. The scriptures call Christ God over all, blessed forever. Thomas called him my Lord and my God. Peter knows, and he says to him, Lord, you know all things. You know where the fish are, and you know where my heart is. You know whether I love you or not. Jesus controls everything in nature. He controls death, but how, now he has authority over men. Remember the question he asked Peter? What if I will that this man tarry till I come? Do you know what Jesus Christ is saying by that question? He's saying that people die when I decide they die. What if I will that he tarry till I come? You might question, well, what difference does that make what you want? In Arminianism, it doesn't make any difference what Jesus wants. He's just helpless. He's left to the whims of free will. In biblical religion, it makes all the difference what Jesus wants. What if I will? What if I will that he tear? What if I decide John's going to live till I come again? I have the right to decide that, and I can decide when he dies. Who is this that decides how long people live in this world? None but God can decide such things. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Who is this that says, If I will that John live to so and so, what is that to you? This is no less than the Lord of the living, of all the living. All authority, he says, is given unto me in heaven and on earth. That's the one against whom you are abiding in your sins. You are resisting God as you resist Christ's claims on you. 
As you stay outside the pale of his church and play your own game of selective religion, you are against the God of the living and the dead. Who decides when you'll die? The Lord Jesus decides when you die. Don't you see it? The whole universe is under the absolute power of the rule and the head of Jesus Christ. He decides who lives. He decides who dies. He decides when they die. And he decides to whom to reveal himself. Remember Matthew chapter 11 in that beautiful invitation of Christ to sinners to come to himself and find rest. Remember what he says. He says, No man knows the Father except the one to whom the Son wills to reveal it. He decides not only whose bodies will go into the grave and what moment they will, he decides whose souls will be saved and what moment they will. Some of you treat the Lord as though he doesn't have this kind of authority. He sets up rulers and kings, presidents and premiers, governors, judges, senators, corporate heads, and he brings them down whenever he pleases. He controls them just as much as he controls the rivers of the waters. Mount St. Helens is the result of Christ's activity. You are hesitating to run to Christ, and in your hesitancy, you are hesitating in the presence of the one who decides if he will save you or not. You are resisting the pleadings of the one who knows how to turn your heart off and turn you away and never reveal to you the Father. Now I want to make this clear to you. You don't have the luxury, mister, to tell the Lord Jesus when you'll believe. You don't have the power to decide that, nor do you have the right to decide it. You don't, you aren't given the luxury to play games with God and say, a more convenient season, I'll deal with this sin or that sin, or this claim or this command. You are answering the one who decides if you'll ever listen. He controls your own heart and brain. He can snuff you out in a moment. He can harden your heart as he did Pharaoh's in a moment. He hardens whom he will. He has mercy on whom he will. You're dealing with God. Don't say to him, and in the passage we read in the Psalms this morning, notice where we left off the next section. Harden not your heart, as in the provocation in the wilderness. Today is the accepted day, is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes to you and offers you his wounds and gives you overtures of his invitation graciously to come and be saved, don't you say, let me think about it. You have a command you must obey or disobey on your step. You're confronted with a decision now. And your decision will be made in response to no less than the ruler of all the universe. I want to apply this and press it home to the contents of the delaying sinner in this place. You children, 
We are very careful in this place not to pronounce salvation on youngsters before we know that there's evidence that they truly believe on the Lord Jesus. Not just because mom and daddy do. But let me, on the other side of that, tell you just as vehemently and strongly, children don't because of that, that when you get older, then you will believe. That somehow, when you become a teenager, or maybe in your early 20s, when we'll start having more confidence that you're confessed, then you'll get it straight. No, no. If you are old enough to understand my words, if you can know that God made you, that you sinned against God, and do every time you disobey mom, or don't listen to sermons, or don't pay attention to what you're being taught, you're sinning. If you can understand that, and if you can understand that the Lord Jesus died for sinners and is inviting you right now to believe on Him as the Savior from your sins, then you are bound and you must make your decision. Don't wait till you're a teenager when you know more. You'll be a worse sinner then. I've been a daddy long enough to watch the hardening process in little children. Don't you presume that because you're little, it's automatic that ten years from now you'll like going to church as much as you do this morning? You wait till puberty sets in. Everything changes. Not just your hormones, but your whole way of thinking changes. And some people who, when they were eleven, just had no problem getting in that car or that van and hopping into church with mom and dad. It was the habit. When they're 13, all of a sudden, you notice they start grumping in bed. Sunday morning is the hardest day in the week to wake up. The whole world is caving in on them when they have to get their Sunday show. They begin to want to read their own books and watch their own TV things, and they don't any longer get excited about the church especially if they've been lured by a frequent exposure to the children of the world in the school system. And you try to reason with a 15-year-old whose heart has already left Christ. What a grief it is to parents in good churches who have to fight their teenagers every Lord's Day just to get them in the car and who live with a burden of tension and bitterness and dark clouds of resentment in their home. Brethren, I tell you, tell your kids about Jesus now and plead with them urgently. Children, hear me. If you don't come to Christ when you first hear Him call, there is no guarantee you'll ever come. If the Lord has spoken to you, believe with all your heart now and pray He will keep you close to Him all your days and never harden you. He's able to do it. You say, Pastor, God doesn't harden the hearts of young people. Old brethren, where have you been? Did you read the paper? Have you ever walked the halls of a typical public classroom, school, room, uh, school building in this generation and just looked at their faces? Have you listened to the music that they dearly love and are willing to give every dime they have for? Have you been in the streets of what we're being called the homeless in our generation and looked how many of them have already lost that glow of life and anticipation in their lives? You say, well, Pastor, that's not their fault. I'm not discussing whose fault. I'm simply saying Christ has the authority to put you out to pasture whenever He will. 
Did any of you adults hear what I said to the children? After all these years, how much time do you have? You say, well, one thing, at least I've never been hardened. I've never been hardened to the gospel. Let me tell you something. If you haven't come to Christ and you're past 20, you're already hard. Or you would have come. How can you describe yourself as being soft-hearted when you're on the way to hell and you haven't repented? You're nothing but hard-hearted. You don't see it. You're dulled. It's already in danger for you. You're already almost at the brink of disaster. This is God we're dealing with. Don't presume on Him. Psalm 2 says, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. That means right now, run to Jesus. Find out His conditions. Fulfill His terms. Be reconciled to God. Cast yourself on His mercy. He doesn't owe anything to you. He doesn't owe you another day. You don't get a chance to come back next week necessarily. My heart still bleeds. I still think of it. I told you about it last time. I still hear those words of that young woman who said, I need to take this a step at a time. I need to go slowly. Oh, dear brethren, you don't run slowly to Christ. Oh, I don't mean you go thoughtlessly. Make sure you understand His requirements. But it doesn't take long to understand them. Make sure you meet the requirements. You must turn from yourself and your sin, those trinkets and those pleasures that have bound your heart. You must run from them. Plead with God at last to have mercy and hope that He will. You say, well, Jesus Christ is merciful. Don't tell me to hope He will. Of course He'll have mercy whenever I come. Oh, dear friend, you're trifling with the Son. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, for soon His wrath will be kindled. Don't you call Jesus a softy? He has the power to kill you. He has the power to open your heart to the truth and to close it. He has the power to take away all your little worldly trinkets and leave your body wasting away with the fruit of them. He has the power to give you everything you want in this world and take your heart away. Don't you presume on Christ. Look how you've treated Him. Poor sinner. You have spurned the God of gods while you trifle with these passing pleasures? Alas, poor deceived soul. Hell's jaws gape wide for you, and hell's hunger pains pant after you to be satiated. Hell's never satisfied. You can't fill it to its satiation. Proverbs speaks of that. And there it is licking with its flames your feet and you're saying give me a time I'm not sure you've got to understand Pastor I've got these things over here that I can hardly break away it's not enough to weep over it it's not enough to admit you have a problem it's not enough to say oh I'm in trouble help you must run to Christ no terms but His nothing held back 
Don't continue to treat the worship of God as an afterthought of your week. Don't continue to treat the Bible as an option for your soul. Hell longs to devour such delay. Soon you will perish if you do not turn. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. The Lord Jesus Christ has power over death. He can kill you when he wants to. He can make you alive. He has power in that if he wants to harden you, he can harden you and you can't get back out. He can shut you up to the prison of your own lust and you'll never escape. He has the power to do it. What would I do if I were in your place? If I heard what I just heard and I hadn't gotten this settled, I tell you, I wonder about your sanity. If you won't do whatever it takes right now to get it straight. On what do you wait? I plead with you. Don't you get home till you get right with God. I wouldn't want to drive my car. Pastor Allen, you're getting dramatic at you. I hope so. You're playing on our emotions. Oh, dear brethren. Everything else plays on your emotions. Why would you resist Christ playing on your emotions? You spent all day yesterday playing with your emotions. Why not this morning? Those emotions will be played on when the flames of hell rattle your cage and rock your boat and eat away at your memory as you remember the occasions and the overtures of Christ to you and you didn't do them. Oh, dear friend, don't wait till then when you look up to the heavens and say, let someone just drop a tip of cool water on my tongue. I'm in torment. In these flames, don't let it happen. The rich man, perhaps had he known, would have repented. But he didn't. And it's too late and there's no turning back. The Lord Jesus Christ has the right to turn you away. Turn you off. Put you to death. Death, death. Don't trifle with him. But he also has the power to make you alive. I purposely painted a picture of desperateness because that's where you are if you've not come to Christ. And when I mean come to Christ, I mean with no conditions except His. And I mean with nothing held back in your little knapsack that you lean on for emotional security other than Him. And I mean with no plans for your future except what He lays out. Follow me. It all has to go. It all has to perish except Him or you can't follow Him. You will not dictate to him your terms. You will not tell him what his word means. He knows what his word means, and he's made it clear. Your family is nothing compared to his claims. Your wife, your children, your parents, your, your, your own life compared to him must be nothing. You must hate him compared to him. He has the power, though, when people come to themselves and confess their sins and humble themselves and fall on his mercy and cry to him for help to deliver you from death. This same Lord who soon will wax wroth 
and utterly destroy those who did not repent of their ungodly deeds, also is gracious and merciful, and always fully receives and saves those that come to him on his terms. Have you come to Christ? I didn't say, have you been associated with a group that claims to be Christian? The Bible never makes such an indication that that's Christianity. I did not ask, have you ever made a decision that said, please Jesus save me from my sins? I'm asking, have you come to Christ? Have you met Christ on his terms? Have you followed Christ? Have you left the world? Have you laid your fish aside? Have you forgotten your own pleasures and run to him? Have you been willing to lose all the world to have Christ? You cannot have him without losing all of this. Did you read it in our consecutive readings in Matthew? What if you gain the whole world? And lose your soul. What are you planning to use to buy it back from God in the day of judgment? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now some of you who perhaps are believers, but you've been trifling on the fringes of devotion, take heed from this message. You've been trifling with one whom you claim you love. You claim he saved you. You claim you're devoted to him. Where is the evidence in your heart? I'm not asking for me. Does he see the evidence? He who is omniscient and knows where fish are located in the sea, and he knows the condition of your heart, can you argue safely with Christ in prayer today? Lord, you know I am utterly devoted to you with no holds barred. Can you say that? Is that settled? You say, well, Pastor, no. But, I mean, all of us have various areas of sin that we've not gotten rid of yet. And, you know, it's going to take some time. Oh, dear brethren, that's a dangerous philosophy. You must come to the place that you will say without reservation, O oh Lord, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. You must come to the place, if you truly repent, to delight in every commandment of God there is in the whole wide Bible. And if there's one you don't like, you have yet to repent. It's either repent of all your sins, or you haven't repented really of any. Which is it? You belong to Christ this morning? If he looks on your heart, which he does, does he see a truly repentant man or woman or child? Have you truly given it to Christ and bowed to his sovereign lordship? Can you with Thomas without reservation say, as one said to me in the foyer, last Lord's day, I want him to be my Lord and my God. I want him to run every part of my life. Have you come to that? If you haven't, or if while you hear me, little things are rushing by your, your brain's eye that you're hoping he won't request because you've begun to be hooked by them. You've begun to be allured by them. I tell you, it makes no difference whether you have named Christ or not. You must run from those things and cleave to Christ or you cannot be saved. 
And Pastor, you don't understand. You were the one that was there when I joined the church and you said that I must you believed I was a Christian. You said my confession was accreditable. You baptized me. You received me. So now you're making me doubt myself. And I'm not making you doubt anything. I know this won't bother you who are walking uprightly with God. But I also know that if you're toying with some sin, you don't need me to tell you what it is because it's already went, gone through your mind as I preached. And I'm saying to you, don't take it out of this room with you. Leave it here. You say, well, Pastor, I've done this a thousand times. And every time it comes back. That's all right. Next time it comes back, you leave it here again. That'll be the pattern of a truly repentant man or woman or child. Whenever sin rises up, you hate it, you deal with it. And if you're not prepared to do that, you might as well come out, come out of the closet and name yourself for what the Lord knows you to be. You're not his follower. You're unsaved. You're not a child of God. The Lord has manifested his lordship in showing his power over death, over nature, and over every man. May we manifest our delight in his lordship by submitting ourselves to that lordship and serving him on his terms. Simple sermon, about a fifth of what I prepared to preach. But you need to hear what I've said, and I'm convinced there are those in this place that are struggling with the issues of eternal life and death in this place. You children, hear what Pastor Allen said today. Don't harden your hearts. Believe on the Lord Jesus. And ask him to have mercy on you and save you from your sins. He will. And then you serve him. And you do right by his grace. Oh, the devil will bug you. And you will fail. But he'll uphold you. And he'll lead you through your life. And he'll be faithful to you. He's the God of the dead and the living. He'll never let anything ultimately ruin you. And you adults, learn from these crumbs that fall off the children's table. Lap them up and kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Don't walk out of here in your pride. Don't walk out of here with your favorite denominational preference and condemn this message because this is not a part of your movement. These are the words of Christ. This is the command and the invitation of Christ. This is Christ the Lord, the Lord of the Catholic and the Lord of the Baptist and the Lord of the Atheist. He's the Lord of the living and the dead. Run to Him. Kiss Him. Get it settled with Him. Then work out your denominational affiliation from His Word. Don't walk out of here thinking you're in control. You're not. He is. Get right with Him. Of all things, get right with Him, lest you perish in the way. May God help us to do business with Christ this morning. And may he have the mercy on all of us that he would meet with us on our beaches so that we may walk away and follow him. Let's bow. Our Father, we have delivered what we believe to be truth. And we've delivered it with vigor. We ask you, though, not trusting in our deliverance, but in your own grace, that you would now yourself deliver it to our hearts. Oh God, we can think of many things that are habitual distractions and lures of our hearts from devotion to you. 
They run past our minds. There are ample numbers of things which threaten our souls. We plead with you, O God, for grace to depart from them and give them up. To leave them and forsake them. O Lord, make this house filled with people who have forsaken all to follow you. Exercise your sovereign power in grace in this place today. Clutch that sinner from the clutches of his sins. Liberate from the hold of the devil. And even in this place today, we pray that you would despoil the goods of Satan for glorious things in the future. Help the children, O Lord, to heed and believe. Impart to them faith. Let them know what it means to grow up knowing you, walking with you, communing with you, serving you, confessing and forsaking sin for you, standing righteously and tall for you. And may we who are older not presume upon our relative strength and mind, but humble ourselves to depend on you. O oh Lord, let us today kiss you, lest you become angry and we perish in the way. Strike us through with the urgency of these things as we bow before you, our Lord and our God, and ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.